Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Is there such thing as a dangerous Bible verse? This episode follows a winding path that culminates at one of the most dangerous verses in the whole Bible. Are you ready? Let's dive in. It's a strange place to start, but the journey towards an answer to the question begins with Pan. Not the kitchen vessel, the god. Pan was a Greek god, and as gods go, he's fairly famous, even today, particularly for what I guess was a relatively minor deity. His fame probably comes from his unique physical appearance, which was a combination of goat and human. From the waist down, he looks like a goat. Okay, if you want to be really technically, he has two legs, which is not very goat-like, but those two legs are definitely the hind legs of a goat, hooves and all. And from the waist up, he's human, pretty much. He does have goat horns on top of his head, some wild hair, and a distinctively goat-like beard. We get two things from Pan. The first is the word panic, which comes from him. Evidently, according to lore, he was very loud, and had a disconcerting yell. The story goes that when the Greek gods were battling a band of giants, Pan's yell caused the giants to be so filled with fear, or in this case, I guess panic is the accurate word, that they were defeated. And his yell, of course, was said to do the same to humans, and so the word panic was born. He's also said to be the inventor of a musical instrument, that is, of course, named after him, the pan pipe. Which, as an aside, I had not heard of until I was, I think, in middle school, and I started seeing an advertisement on television for a musical artist named Zamfir, who played nothing but the pan pipe. According to the commercial, which I remember with more clarity than I would really like, he sold more albums than the Beatles or Elvis. Now, I never bought the album because, well, because I was a kid. And to be honest, the commercial gave me all the panpipe exposure I really needed for the rest of my life. But evidently, Pan invented the pipe, but it was Zamfir who it sounds like perfected its use. Now, at the time of Jesus, there was a town that was about 27 miles due north of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area, if you remember, were where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry. This bustling trading town was named Panias. Today, it's mostly ancient ruins and is known by the name Banias, which is clearly a derivation of the previous name. This town was beautiful and dramatic. It's the site of a significant spring, giving the location some lush, dense, and beautiful vegetation. And even more dramatic is that the spring is situated at the base of a cliff. This cliff was one of the major sites in the ancient world known for the worship of Pan. Up the face of the cliff are a number of carved-out niches that held statues of various Greek gods, including Pan. 
Pan was a wild god and almost always worshipped in wilderness locations, but amongst those, he was frequently worshipped in caves, which is why this location was named after him. At the base of the cliff was an enormous cave out of which the spring flowed. In front of that cave, over the spring, was built a very large temple for the worship of Pan. So here was a town that was both beautiful, but also no matter your location in the town, you were reminded of the worship of various gods as they quite literally, physically loomed over you. In the Bible, specifically the New Testament, this town is referred to as Caesarea Philippi. It was in this location that Jesus decided to have a very important conversation with his disciples. He asks them, who do people say that I am? This was a bit of a softball question for the disciples. You see, I have no doubt when the disciples were alone, together as a group, but away from Jesus, this was pretty much all they talked about with each other. Everywhere they went, people probably pulled them aside individually and asked them for the insider's take as to who Jesus was and what was his ultimate goal. And no doubt, those very same people would often offer the disciples, their own theories as to who Jesus was. So when Jesus asks them this question, I've always imagined that there was a brief moment of intense silence where they looked around at each other to be sure, are we really going to do this? And then suddenly there was a deluge of answers coming from all of them simultaneously. But this wasn't even the question that Jesus really wanted to ask. This question was, as I said, the warm-up question. He knew they would be loosened up by this question and more likely to speak honestly when he asked the real question, which was the only one that really mattered. Who do you say that I am? It's interesting that Jesus didn't ask this question in a more traditional site, say, the middle of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is the geographical heart of Judaism, the faith of Jesus and his disciples. Now, I think there was good reason for this. If he had asked it in a traditionally religious location, he would probably have received a safe, traditionally religious answer. But in this case, He took them where they were surrounded by a pantheon of foreign gods. And ultimately, in the journey of faith, everyone has to answer the question, but who do you say the one you follow is? Obviously, many people can go their entire lives without answering the question, but if you really want to grow in your faith, then it is at very least an important question and more than likely an unavoidable one. So Jesus takes them out of their comfortable faith home turf to ask them this question. Now, as an aside, I've often known Christians who refuse to learn about other faiths or to visit houses of worship of other faiths for fear that somehow doing so will betray their own belief system. 
What's interesting is that in this case, Jesus seemed to have believed the opposite was true. He seemed to have thought, I will take my disciples into the heart of a worship location of another faith, and in that place, I will expect them to discover something about their own belief. So Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, without hesitation, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This was a major moment and turning point for the disciples. When Peter said this, we would probably be mistaken to think of it as Peter's victorious, drop-the-mic sort of moment. Instead of it being a display of confidence, I think the better analogy would be that it was like a moment when you're in a new romantic relationship with someone and you suddenly let the word love slip out. And you not only let it slip out, but you do so much earlier and with more passion than you'd ever planned. Peter blurts out with sudden passion, you are the Messiah. Then Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Though this is not one of the most dangerous passages in Scripture, it is perhaps the most debated, at least since the Reformation. It is through this passage that the church, for generations and generations, understood Peter to be the original first leader of the church. The name Peter means rock, so when Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, it's often seen as naming Peter as the cornerstone leader of the new church. When the Reformation came about, the Protestants began to interpret the passage differently than it had been interpreted before. They interpreted it as meaning not that Peter was the rock upon which the church was founded, but that Peter's profession of faith was the rock upon which the church was founded. Because of the theological importance of Peter's profession of faith and because of the ongoing debate as to exactly what the rock was, which Jesus was referring to, we often miss the next passage as dangerous and powerful. The dangerous and yet also powerful passage of Scripture comes immediately after Peter's profession. Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As I quit, but I promise related aside, in our family, as the one who does most of the cooking, I'm often asking people, what do they want to eat? Do you want steak or do you want chicken? Do you want rice or do you want potatoes? Do you want a cookie or a brownie for dessert? To which my daughter, who spent a year studying in Spain, often responds to me in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, so I apologize for my pronunciation in advance. But she often says to me when I ask one of these questions, do you want this or this to eat? She says, por qué no los dos? Which means, why not both? Or at least that's what she's told me it means. Jesus just told Peter he's going to receive the keys to the kingdom and have some very heady authority. So here's the question. Is Jesus talking to Peter? or the church at this moment? To which I think my daughter's question is appropriate. 
Por que no los dos? Why not both? I think Jesus is speaking directly to Peter, who understands his role in founding Jesus' new church. So the instruction is pretty clear for Peter and the church of which he is a part. So the church has been told by Jesus, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, let me be clear. I don't think this passage is dangerous because we spend too much time focusing on it. I think it is dangerous because we spend almost no time at all pondering the heady ramifications of the power it describes. Allow me to share a personal story. In episode two of this podcast, entitled, Is the Bible True?, I tell a story of when our oldest child, our son, was very young, and in short, through some bad parenting choices of my own, at age two, he managed to get on a jet ski by himself, zip across a lake, get injured, and need stitches on his head from which he still has a very Harry Potter-like scar on his forehead at age 30. The Sunday after the accident happened, a woman came up to me at church and said, Dan, I just heard what happened to Daniel, your son. How awful! At this exact moment, I was preparing for her to console me, to offer pastoral care, or perhaps pepper me with questions because both had been happening a lot that morning. Instead, she said, I just wanted to tell you, I will never forgive you for what happened to your son. And with that, she turned and walked away. And there I stood, pondering in that moment what it means to have it pronounced that I will never be forgiven. As you can tell, I have never forgotten this encounter, as I'm pretty sure she intended. Imagine that you live in a world similar to that of Harry Potter. Everyone in this world is born with magic. Except in this world, every single person walks around with two powers they are born with from their very first day. One hand, they have the magical power to wound, and literally from the other hand, they have the magical power to heal. It is a difficult place to live in this world because people spend most of their time making visceral reactions to each other's behaviors. As a culture, they've become very good at smiting each other, so they wound each other a lot. Eventually, the culture seems to have forgotten altogether that anyone has the ability to heal. So mostly, it's a sad place with a lot of permanently wounded people who never get better. Then along comes a man who teaches people about a different way of being. He teaches them about a God who loves them, cares about their well-being, and wants them to love and care about each other the way God loves them. Suddenly, one day, a follower of this man realizes this is not just any ordinary man. This is God incarnate on earth. And then the man does a curious thing. He reminds them of their power to wound and heal. When Jesus tells Peter, the disciple, 
and the rest of his followers and the church about our power to bind and to loose, I don't think he was bestowing a great power. I think he was warning us to pay attention to it. We are born, each of us, with the power to bind and to loose, to wound and to heal, to judge and to forgive. It is time for us to put aside our power to bind. The world is filled with people who have been forever bound to their mistakes and brokenness by friends, neighbors, family, and people who follow them on Facebook. Remember, if the role of Jesus had been about condemnation and judgment, God could have achieved all of that without taking human form. As far as I can tell from my reading of Scripture, the only reason for God's becoming human was so that all the emphasis could be on relationship, love, forgiveness, and redemption. Finally, I think the word bind is a fascinating one in this passage. For when we bind someone to their mistakes, their brokenness, their sin, I think the act of binding also binds us to that person. So the more we judge others and deem them beyond redemption or forgiveness, the more we are deciding to forever be the carrier of that burden. And the opposite is true. When we release people from their sin and mistakes, we find that the very process of doing so releases us also. It's through love that we can realize we are loved. It is through generosity that we can discover how richly blessed our lives are already. And it is through forgiving others that we can finally realize we are forgiven. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email. And I invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. My email is skypilot at gmail.com. And my Twitter handle is at skypilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.